I know my name's Simon. I think Casey said it. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm one of the, the pastors here at Grace City. Very, very glad to have you. I think you may have noticed on the slide our, our vision statement, our strap line, if you will. And that is simply, we exist so that anyone might experience truth, grace, and new life in Jesus Christ. Um, that's, that pretty much sums up. Uh, why we've begun this church community here. We were sent out by our, our sending church, Grace City in Corvallis, um, almost two years ago, about a year and a half ago. And it's, it's to do that. We wanna just be another way or opportunity, a community for people who, who wanna experience truth and grace and ultimately new life in Jesus Christ. So wherever you're coming from this morning, whatever you believe or don't believe, I hope that you'll find yourself um, experiencing some sense of community, a family this morning where you can be yourself. You can ask your questions, voice your objections. Someone did that last week. I always say it every week, and then every once in a while, someone will like make a beeline for me at the end of the service and actually voice their objection. And I'm like, brilliant, it's, it's happening. Like You guys are actually taking this seriously. Good. Um, but that's who we are. That's what we're doing here. Welcome, glad you're here this morning. We're gonna jump right into our sermon this morning, which is actually part two of our summer series, which we've entitled The Classics. We're going through all of the classic stories of the Old Testament. Now, before you think, oh, what, I already know all of those. My contention is that no, you do not, um, any more than I do. Um, if you grew up, possibly in Sunday school, you have some sort of familiarity uh, with some of the classics like Noah's Ark, the Tower of Babel, so on and so on. But if you're anything like me, it's quite possible, even likely, that you've only ever gotten sort of the children's version of these. And guys, these are so not children's stories. These are actually really intense, often um, violent stories that have been given to us in the scriptures that have been inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to teach us something quite Profound about the very nature of God himself and thus ourselves as well. So that's what we're getting up to this summer. If you missed last week, it's always in the podcast. Uh, but without any further ado, we're gonna jump into the Tower of Babel. So if you brought a Bible, you can flip it open to Genesis chapter 11. My little leaning tower there. Yep. Thank you. Um, if you need a Bible, feel free to grab one um, out of the center aisle here. Those are always available for you guys. Um, we will have some of the text on the screen this morning, um, but not all of it. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the honor of coming before you as your children. Thank you that because of who you are and what you've done for us, we can come before your throne with confidence, knowing that it is your great joy to lean down, to draw close to us. Father, that's my desire for us this morning, that we would 
we would know your closeness, that we would know your heart, and that you would change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Starting in verse one. Now, the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Verse five, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And we'll stop there. What a, what a bizarre account of human history. What a, what a bizarre retail, retelling of, of the human experience. What are we meant to understand about God and ourselves, uh, where we've come from, the evolution of humanity and culture? Um, it, it's an exceptionally strange story, is it not? Now, I suppose at first glance, one might be tempted to simply uh, interpret it as sort of a, a, I don't know, an anti-human unity story. Uh, like God just seems to have a problem with the fact that all of humanity has come together to, to erect this, this city and this tower. And um, it would seem they're, they're simply trying to survive, but uh, God obviously is not down with it. So he uh, confuses them and... Humanity is dispersed. I don't know if that's what's happening at all. We need, we need to get a bit of context here um, because in fact, the story actually begins at the end of chapter 10. Um, if you were here last week, we know of course, this is, this is the next story that's told after Noah. The flood, the reset, the cleansing of the world and, and the rebirth of creation, humanity in this family of Noah. And then right after that, we're given the genealogy of Noah. We're given the generations of Noah. He has three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Those are his three sons. And we're given the lineage of those three sons. 
Uh, Noah has a son named Shem. Shem has a son named Arpachshad. Arpachshad has a son named Shelah. Shelah has Eber. Eber has two sons named Peleg and Joktan. This is all extremely important. Make sure you write this down. <laughs> Eber has two sons named Peleg and Joktan. Peleg, we're told, literally means division. And I don't know that that's a, a, an irrelevant or simply random detail that's given to us in scripture. We're meant to understand that humanity is not together. Only five generations have passed and already Shem is naming his son Division. Or rather, that would be the great-grandson of Shem. Peleg. But then humanity would seem to have evolved. They, they realized, I would argue, have figured out that they, the, the whole tribalism thing is not working. If they're going to survive, they need to come together. They need to build something that they can protect them, lest they be dispersed over the face of the earth, i.e., die out. And so they all move west and they decide to build a city and a tower. They get unified. I think that's some sort of evolution of humanity. I mean, it's interesting, I think just on a completely side note, how these days it would seem we're beginning to devolve back into a very sort of tribal um, society. Um, and it's not good for all sorts of reasons. So it's not an anti-unity story. And I would say that most definitely because, well, number one, um, God himself says in Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. And it's there that he commands his blessing. God is radically pro-unity. Jesus himself in the high priestly prayer given to us in John 17 prays that we might be one. One, just as son and father are one, that we might be one together and with him. God's absolutely pro-unity. Of course, that does beg the question, unity uh, to what ends? Unity to what end? I reckon we can all imagine um, of examples of like a radically unified Movements throughout human history that have resulted in some really, really unfortunate stuff. Um, if you get to know me at all, you'll, I think you'll quickly discover that I, I actually feel quite passionate about unity, particularly within the church. Um, as a church, I think we've worked fairly hard to actually build relationships uh, with other churches in the city. Um, because that's simply how Jesus builds his church. Um, it's how we love each other in a way that when those who don't know Jesus or perhaps don't want have anything to have anything to do with Jesus can look on and know that we're his disciples because we're loving each other across tribal lines. Um, which is why every Tuesday morning we get together in this room at 6 a.m. We pray with, with our, our friends at Door of Hope the church who owns this building, we lead it from them. Um, which is why in September, I'm giving a little, little commercial break here, which is why in September, uh, 
We're going to spend the entire month, the 1st through the 30th of September, praying every morning from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. with as many churches as we can bring together at the little chapel on the campus at Western Seminary. So save that date. I'm excited and dreading it. (laughs) I feel like the more I say it, the more I talk about it, the more I'm bound to do it. So see you in September. Unity is a big deal. It's not an anti-greatness story. I think we could easily write it off as this sort of, well, you know, it's just like this pride thing, right? Humanity has decided, like, oh, we're gonna make a name for ourselves and we're gonna build this tower and we're gonna get to the top and we can this, this way prove to the world and to ourselves that we're, we're great. And I, I suppose in that respect, yeah, that, that could be problematic. That could be problematic, but I don't know if that's what we're meant to understand about this story because we know that, that God's not anti-great, Jesus, if, if you're familiar with any of the gospels, he had a, a small band of disciples that were following him all over Israel and they apparently aspired towards greatness. They wanted to be great and they were quite regularly bickering about who's the greatest and, and at the most like inappropriate times, they would like get into these arguments about who's the greatest. And Jesus would inevitably interrupt and he'd said, hey, what are you guys talking about? Oh, nothing, no big deal, never mind. <laughs> and they'll say something like, look, if you wanna be great, I'll tell you how. Become a servant. The greatest among you will be the servant of all, will be the greatest servant. And so he qualifies greatness. He helps us to understand greatness but he's not anti-greatness at all. In fact, I would, I would argue that greatness is part of the original commission that humanity's being given. God has given us the responsibility to, to be stewards of creation. Uh, Genesis, the, the word used is to take dominion, to be fruitful, multiply, to cultivate, to be creative, uh, to rule over the earth like King Jesus. Very important qualifier. So I think we're destined to be great, to do great things because our God is great and we're like him as his children. It's not an anti-city message. Now, I, I doubt if many, if any of us are thinking about this, but some could, some could hear this message and think, oh yeah, it's, it's the city. The city's evil. We need to head for the suburbs. That's what we need to do. <laughs> mm, I guess that's, that's what you're into. No, no, I think God absolutely loves the city, has a vision for the city. And in fact, if, if you wanna just be a bit pragmatic, you can, you can trace God's movements, particularly in the books of Acts, of how, of how he, he used cities as these sort of cultural epicenters to advance the gospel. Something quite strategic about cities. God's not anti-city. In fact, I would say God is absolutely pro-city, and I'll tell you why. This, This land that 
the children of man decided to build a city and erect a tower. They said it was the land of Shinar. They, they headed west and they ended up settling in the land of Shinar. S-H-I-N-A-R. The next time we hear about Shinar in any sort of narrative sense in the scriptures, it's in the first chapter of Daniel. You know where Shinar was? Shinar is where the city of Babylon ended up being founded. Babylon, which is where God's people, the tribe of Judah, was eventually exiled to. They were taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and exiled to Babylon, which is in the land of Shinar. And the prophet Jeremiah comes along in Jeremiah 29, verses four and five. And what does he say? He says, seek the welfare of the city. He's speaking to God's exiled people who are now in captivity in the land of Shinar, Babylon. And he doesn't say, down with the city, burn the city, overthrow the city. He says, seek the welfare of the city. Pray to the Lord for it on its behalf. And if that doesn't seal the deal in Revelation 21, where the apostle John has a vision of what the kingdom's gonna look like when Jesus returns and perfects the good work that he started, what do we see? We see the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem coming down. It's a city. It's a city. What about the tower? What about the tower? Is it about the tower? It's a little bit about the tower. But it's not just the tower, right? I think God's like, oh, I don't like the architecture. (laughs) This thing's not being built right. Now, the tower clearly represents something about about what humanity has gotten up to. The tower is to be viewed as a, well, on one level, it's a means of survival. What did they say? Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed throughout the earth. This, this, is, this is survival speak. Look, we need to build a city. We need to build a tower because if we don't, We will have no name. We will have no lineage. We won't survive. So we need to come together. We need to build something. So the tower can be viewed as a means of survival. The tower can be seen as a way of life. And I would argue probably most fundamentally, the tower is a kind of culture. It's a source of identity. It's tower culture. And I would say it like this. This story is about a tower culture, which is ultimately a story of man's ascension to the heavens. This is a way of life. These people weren't just building a tower. They were creating a way of life, which is, by the way, why language features so obviously in the story. Language is the foundation of culture. No language, no culture. You wanna, you wanna destroy a culture, begin to mess with its language. Begin to alter, begin to erode language. Begin to remove meaning from words, you lose language. You lose your language, 
culture's gone, which is why it's, it's so interesting how some of the most ancient languages have survived. When I was in Israel a number of years ago, we spent about a month there doing a little study tour as Christians like to do. And, and part of that, we spent about a week in a Hebrew class. I didn't know anything about Hebrew up until that point. And I learned that the Hebrew culture is intrinsic to the language. And it's amazing how the language at least in its ancient form, has actually survived, given all that this ancient people have been through. So the story is really about culture. What I would say is tower culture. What is tower culture? I'll put it like this. Tower culture is you bring your brick and you begin to fight for your spot at the top. That, that's what this is really a picture of. It's these people banding together, creating something, establishing a culture that they might survive, that they might create a name. And how are they doing it? Well, it says they decided to bake bricks to bake them thoroughly and then use the bricks to begin to ascend their way to heaven. But what does that look like? Well, because none of you know what a tower looks like, allow me. There's a tower, thank you. It's pretty good. Let me ask you this. In this picture, where are you? Reckon you're at the bottom, working your way up, got your little brick, maybe a couple bricks, baked them, brought them to the party. Where's God? Up here, probably get some clouds here. God at the top. The scriptures tell us that as they were building this tower, God came down. I don't think God's at the top of the tower. God's not in the clouds. God has this knack for constantly coming down. I like to imagine this building site. I don't know if you spent much time uh, I don't know, around builders growing up. I spent enough time around builders to realize I really needed to get a college degree. <laughs> no offense, I really wish I had, I had not thought that way because I could have learned a whole lot had, if I hadn't have been so dumb. Uh, but my dad, my dad's a blue collar worker and he works hard, so hard. I gotta, I gotta figure out a way to get out of this. Um, there is no way out of it, by the way. But I imagine God coming down and you got some guys down here. Of course, you got someone at the top. Someone is always at the top of the tower. Most of us are probably down here someplace. Some of us have maybe worked our way up, depending upon how, I don't know, how, how well you built or the 
quality of your bricks, or I don't know, maybe you were born into the right family, got yourself a spot someplace on the second or third tier. But God's down here, and I can imagine him coming along, and he probably walks up next to the foreman and says, so what what you guys building? This is impressive. Building a tower, where have you been? Oh, awesome, what are you, what's, who's at the top? You don't know? God. Huh, interesting. Which God exactly? And the foreman, of course, gets a little impatient. He says, pal, do you, do you even have a permit to be here? Where are your bricks? And the people have in their mind that, well, God is obviously at the top, and if they build this tower tall enough, eventually they will ascend to the very throne of God. And when God has this way of coming down, Here we are carrying our bricks around. I really wish I could have found one of those little small red bricks, but (laughs) I got a cinder block instead. Yeah. I reckon this is a story about God realizing that people want to survive, that we look at, we're trying to get by. We're looking for God, give him that. There was something about their intuition that told them ultimately if they're going to survive, they're gonna need God's help. They're gonna need God on their side. The problem was they had it all backwards. They thought that the God they were looking for was a God who hung out at the tops of towers that was only found in heaven. And the only way they could get to him, somehow perhaps earn his favor, get his help, is if they began to build And so they grabbed bricks and they got at it. And God says, no, this is not good. You're gonna kill yourselves. You're gonna exhaust yourselves. What you're gonna do is you're gonna build a tower and you know you're gonna find up there? Not me, some guy lining his pockets with your brick money. The man of God, the guru, the one with all the answers. God says, no, I like to hang out at the bottom. My agenda is to come down. Because God's like that. But we continue to walk around with our bricks, trying to build this thing, looking for some sense of security, looking for our place on the tower. And the brick gets heavy, but I'm not gonna set it down. I mean, at some point, my identity gets wrapped up in this thing. Like if I, if I set my brick down, I'm gonna lose my place on the tower. I may not even survive. You guys know what I'm saying? This is, this is a problem. You know when God calls something sin in the Bible? It's because He has something he wants to do, uh, something he wants to give us, a kingdom that he wants to establish that's way, way, way better. God never calls something sin arbitrarily. He doesn't just look and say, oh, that just annoys me. Ew, that's just kind of gross. Oh, I don't, no. 
God, God commands us to think of him, to speak to him as a kind of good, loving, powerful father. Father. And so when God says, no, don't do that. Stop building that way. Put that brick down. And we don't listen, and he has to go to extreme measures, it's because he has a better way. Sometimes, here's here's something controversial for you. Sometimes God's will for your life is for you to fall really, really hard in your face so that you you will have to set that brick down. You gotta set it down. And God will go to extreme extents. Oh, it can hurt because some of us are so stinking stubborn. <laughs> I mean, not, not me, but. <laughs> it took me forever. Oh, I fell many times, but man, I clung to that brick with all my might. It gets heavy after a while, it gets heavy. And so God says, forget the tower. I'm gonna hold this thing for as long as I can. (laughs) So he says, no, I'm not going to let you build a tower. Tower culture is not the way forward because God's not about building towers. God's about building tables. I wanna talk to you about table culture. Table culture. Tower culture is man's ascension to the heavens. Table culture is God's dissension to man. He comes down. You bring yourself and are guaranteed a spot at the table. Tower culture, you bring your brick. You bring the best you got. And if it ain't good enough, well, sorry, buddy. You're, you're gonna live on, on ground level most of your life. Table culture, you bring empty hands. You bring yourself, you bring your best, you bring your worst. And God gives you a spot in the family. That's table culture. Luke 14, let's go there. This is how Jesus describes it. He's at a dinner party. They're sitting around a table. It's a banquet. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 16. Jesus said, and tells him a story. He says, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Verse 19, another said, I have bought five yokes of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. (laughs) To his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly 
to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done. Still, there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Guys, this is a, a warning and good news. The warning is, if you want a seat at the table, you're gonna have to set down your brick. If you wanna come to the party, if you want to experience the life that we're all looking for, however you might be looking for it, you're gonna have to set down whatever it is you've got that you think is so much better or more important. How do you get a seat at the table in table culture? You must be willing to lay down your brick. So what's your brick? Now, I suppose the Sunday school answer would be sin. All right, correct, fine. (laughs) But what does that mean? What does that mean? Lay down your sin, what, stop lying? Yeah, we'll just do that anyways, because it's not helpful. Uh, Would you cuss too much? Yeah, it's super unbecoming. You should totally just stop that. Um, How about we go deeper? What is it that you're building desperately trying to erect in your life that you think is gonna give you what you're looking for? That's the real question. Because at the root of every sin decision is a deep, unmet desire. And if you think by erecting the perfect career, if you think by making just the right income, if you think, listen carefully, this is a good one, if you think by finding the one, you guys know what I'm talking about, that perfect one, that somehow you're going to finally experience the, the fulfillment you've always been looking for, God, that, that weight is going to crush you in the end. The higher this tower gets, the more pressure you got going on down here. That weight will crush you in the end. If you want to place at the table, if you want to experience table culture, God's way, you've got to set down the brick. You've got to be willing to come to the party with nothing in your hands. Some of us, guys, we sometimes as as a Christian, speaking for myself, I noticed I have this thing. I came to Jesus realizing there was nothing I could sort of contribute. There was nothing I could do to add to what he had already done for me. So he died for my sins on the cross. He paid the price for my rebellion against God. He took the wrath of God onto himself. He died for me. And there's absolutely nothing that I can do to add to his perfect work on the cross. 
and I take my seat at the table and I'm there for a while, but then I think, I, I, then I relapse. And I think, well, we gotta get to work around here. We gotta build this thing up. We gotta make a name. My little ego decides to creep back into the picture and I pick up a brick. Before you know it, I got, I got a little rock in my pocket. You know, I just kind of carry it around. You might need a rock. Might need to build something. Before you know it, now I've got a brick in one hand. I've got a cinder block on my back. And I'm walking around as a member in the family of God, acting like I'm a brick worker. No offense if, you're a, if you do masonry. <laughs> Wasn't meant to be that. trying to build something as if I'm a slave, as if my good father is withholding something good from his child, his son, or his daughter. Guys, if you want to place the table, I'm actually sweating now. (laughs) You've got to put the brick down. Thank you. That's number one. Number two... You must be willing to sit at eye level with your fellow table members, all right? Because we all come in on level playing ground, right? We all start in desperate need of God's grace. Oh, this was way better. (laughs) I don't care what you've done what you've gotten up to, how big or gross your mistakes in life have been, we all start right here. I need God's grace, his forgiveness, his mercy, just as much as you do, and vice versa. You need to be forgiven. You need to experience God's unconditional love, and so do I. There's no looking down in the kingdom. Even Jesus got on his hands and knees to wash the feet of his own disciples. Now we could say all sorts of things about that. But the point is, at the table, we're all sitting eye level. That can be really hard. I mean, it sounds good, right? Everyone's nodding. Oh, that's so good, so good. (laughs) Yeah, let's now now attempt to live that out. Because ego is a real thing. I know. I'm all the time. You know how it manifests for me? I desperately want you guys to like me. I want you to like this sermon so, so badly. So much so that... I have a really hard time just going to bed Saturday nights. Why? Do do I have have something to impress? Do, do, Do I have something to prove? No. But it is tempting to just want it just to be a little bit up here. Like, I don't want to be the guy down here. I don't want to be like way up at the top, but maybe just like a little bit up here because then I can feel secure. And successful. We have to be willing to sit eye level with our fellow guests at the table, always remembering 
that no matter how quote unquote advanced you get in your spiritual walk, we're all sinners saved by the grace of God. That never ever changes. If anything, the more we progress, the more humble we become. Back up to my platform. (laughs) Thus ends the metaphor. (laughs) Number three, and we're almost done. If you wanna sit at the table, you must be willing to learn the new language. Remember, this is not an anti-unity, this is not an anti-language story, right? We know that in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out. You guys remember what happened, if you're familiar with the story? All of a sudden, all of these tribes of the earth had gathered, and they're all speaking different languages. They were still living in the wake of Babel. And what did God do? He poured out his spirit, and all of a sudden, everyone there was hearing the same thing. They were, they were understanding the apostles, proclaiming the goodness of God in their own language. God reversed Babel. He taught his people a new language. What was happening when God poured out his spirit? It says in Jeremiah chapter 31, that when that happens, when God establishes his new covenant and pours out his spirit on all flesh, he would write his law on the heart of his children. What is the summation of his law? To love God and to love each other. What is the new language in God's kingdom of table culture? It's the language of unconditional love, sacrificial love. That's the language we speak at the table. In the tower culture, the higher up you go, the less you have to do. In tower culture, the goal is to get to the top and retire and just live an utterly self-absorbed life until you die. That's tower culture. In table culture, you guys know what a table looks like. Allow me. Thank you. In table culture, the more you progress, the more you get to, the more you desire, the more it's your supreme honor to serve. You start out as a guest of honor. You're a guest at the table. You come, you sit, you eat. People come, they wait on you. Jesus washes your feet. And you're just, man, you're just like, this is the best thing ever. I can hardly, it feels like there's gotta be like a catch. How could it be that God's grace is this good and utterly free? And it's, it's hard to actually embrace that. But the longer you sit at this table, the greater your desire to serve becomes. Because the longer you sit at the table with Jesus, the more you begin to become like him. And the greatest at the table is the servant of all. So just to make it super practical, guys, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've been sitting at the table, perhaps for a little while, 
and you don't have this overwhelming desire to serve others, to apply sacrificial love, uh, you need to repent. You're in sin. You're acting like an immature Christian. And the Bible would say, it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. In fact, it should be slightly alarming because what that means is that something is, is not quite right in your heart. Because the longer you're at the table, the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you ought to desire to serve others, to give, to serve, to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters in the world around you. This isn't something that you look forward to not doing anymore. You're like, man, if I, just, if I pay my dues, perhaps I can then just chill out at the top. No, Jesus flips the table over. He turns the kingdom upside down. It's a reverse economy. And he says, now you start sitting at the table, being served, receiving, 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 receiving. And then one day you wake up, you're like, hang on, I have got to get in on the action. I've got to, I gotta serve, I gotta give. I must love others. Almost to a point of desperation. When you show up at church, you're like, okay, I'm here. I wanna serve. Will you receive? I hope. Will you be fed? Yes, I hope. For all doing our jobs. But the more you grow, the more you mature, at the table, the more you learn to speak the language of sacrificial love fluently. Last one. This one's short. You must come hungry. You want to sit at the table? You've got to come starving. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Psalm 107, verse 9 says, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Guys, coming to the table isn't like, oh, I had a really good meal, but I could really use like a donut and a coffee just to like top it off. Or not. No big deal. Nope. You're at the wrong table. I, I think you might want to get in the tower line. That's, that's a totally different ride. Here, take this brick and go, go get to work on that tower because that's clearly what you're looking for. If you're, if you're hoping just to get a bit of a spiritual supplement, a little additive, a little appetif to top off the meal, guys, sorry, you're in the wrong line. You gotta come to the table starving, starving, thirsting, longing at a soul level because that's where Jesus meets us. That's where he meets us. Let me close by reading to you out of John chapter six. Starting in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, speaking to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life 
and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and thirsts and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. I like the bread the fathers ate and died, speaking of Israel in the desert. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. That's what we're talking about is the bread of life. We're talking about feeding on the very life of God. We come to the table not because we're slightly hungry, because we are dead without that meal. We are dead. We're not actually even just dying, we're dead. We come to Jesus as the source, the sole source of true life. Oh, I know, it's a mystery. Like, what does that mean? They didn't know either. I will tell you this. I will tell you this. About 19 years ago, I decided to put my brick down, put my faith in Jesus. I knew that I had, there was a, a, a pit in my soul that for the life of me, I could not fill up. And I tried. Oh, God knows, I tried. I was diligent. Finally, the weight of my brick was too much, so I set the thing down. And I said, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, if you've done what you've claimed to do, save me, because I'm exhausted. Save me because I want to live. Save me because I don't want to die and go to hell. Save me because everyone tells me that you are who I'm looking for. And guys, 19 years later, I'm still feasting on the Son of God, the life that comes through knowing the Father. This is what Jesus has done for me. He's made this relationship possible. And sometimes you've just got to taste and see. Like some of you are waiting. You've got your brick in one hand and you're like, you know what? Maybe, maybe, but I'm just going to hold on to this bad boy just in case. Guys, I'm so sorry, but you're not going to, you can't carry this to the table. There's no room for cinder blocks at the table. You've got to set it down. Perhaps, perhaps it's not heavy enough yet. Okay, maybe you're like me and you gotta just, God's like, fine. You want a face plant? I'll give you a face plant. You're still gonna have to make the decision. Oh, he's so good, guys. He's so good. And the way he fills your soul, it's beyond words. A.W. Tozer, I'll close with this. It's my favorite quote. It's the only one that I've actually memorized. Um, He said, to have found God and yet still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionist, 
but justified and happy experience by the children of the burning heart. Taste them, you'll see. It's like a meal that you just, it just it's fulfilling, but you just can't get enough. It's the soul's paradox of love. Can we stand together? If you're serving communion, um, can you guys come and We're gonna feed on the body of Jesus now. And uh, of course, it's not the bread or the juice that fills you. It's an appeal to God. It's a, it's a, a very visceral act of saying, Jesus, I need you. I'm willing to come to you with empty hands and feast on the bread of life to receive your forgiveness, your love, your life. We take the bread, which is his body. We dip it in the juice, which is his blood. And we say yes. We say yes and receive eternal life. Some of you, you need to make a conscious decision. Put the cinder block down. Get that little rock out of your back pocket. After a lifetime, that thing will get heavy. Know that your identity will only ever truly be found and the one who gave you life in the first place. Come to Jesus again, come empty handed, receive his love. Whenever you're ready. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming down. Thank you for making a way for us to set the bricks down at your feet, at the foot of the cross so that you can carry the weight that we were never made to carry. So that we can take our place at your table. So that we can begin to live differently. So that we can become more like you Learn the language of the cross. Father, I pray that as we go out of this place, that you would fill our hearts with more of your love for your lost sons and daughters, for those who are just just slugging away, dragging their bricks around, trying to piece together some some semblance of joy or life. Lord, we don't look down on anyone. We don't, we don't pity. We don't, Father, teach us to love. Teach us to be those who would say, hey, there's a place for you at the table. Come meet the one. No, 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 no. Leave your brick. Set it down. You won't need it. Empty your pockets. He's got nothing you need. He has everything You have nothing he needs. He has everything that you do. Help us to love like you love, Father. And all God's people said, amen.